Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is found in the book of Hosea, chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And the New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're going to talk about power. What comes to your mind? Power. What comes to your mind when you think of the powerful? Today, you know, I don't need to tell you that power and those who are powerful are associated, if not becoming synonymous with, evil. To be powerful is to 
repent with the assumption that power is corruptive, that power is oppressive. Think about that for a minute, the power of money, the power of political power, let's say, the power of position, the power of majority, the power of gender, the power of, of uh, race, it's power. And transactions become very powerful transactions. They are, we live in a transactional society where there's power relating to those who want to take that power. Even Christianity has been sabotaged by this. Thinking that by seizing the world's power, we can expand the kingdom of God. People come even to this campus saying, I want to reach Yale. And I say, why? Because they're the gatekeepers of the world. We're going to reach Yale that we might get into the power sectors of the world and expand Christianity. Have they not read the Gospels? Have we not read the Gospels? You see, we can't ignore this. Enter into this, our concept of God, you see. I mean, by definition, God is the most powerful. He is of status that is the most sovereign. We even hear him called Lord. How can we enter into a transactional relationship with someone like that? This is a time when let me just be me. And it's toxic to get around someone who doesn't agree with me to be me. We can't ignore this. It's becoming a great barrier to becoming a Christian. It's a barrier and that the world will more and more see us, those who would, would prop up God as powerful with a cynicism and a skepticism, perhaps understood in religious history past, but with a cynicism that that is just leveraging your religion to be powerful and oppressive. There's so much that needs to be said here. We just can't ignore what's going on in a let me be me, do not, even in a moral way, impose power upon that. Enter Christ in the clear countercultural message that Jesus is Lord, such that we ought to submit to him. And those powerful, may it never be white men, but anybody those powerful that say that to people on behalf of Christ. That we are called, though, by God to be more like him, to do his thing as a means towards being more complete and truly me is, is inconceivable. Are you comfortable with this? 
Are you willing to submit to Christ's lordship in your lives, such as to reject the cultural morality that you shouldn't? That that is only to appease power and oppression? These are huge implications, I hope you see. And, and so we come to a passage where the whole point of the passage wants us to consider what it means that Jesus came being proclaimed as the son of David. The son of David, the most powerful warrior king of Israel's history. And yet a man after God's own heart. And more to the point of this passage, would we want to obey this son of David? Would we trust him and his power not to oppress us? Not to serve himself in his own interest at our expense. But to bless us and to heal us and to save us. Could it be that this powerful warrior king has compassion and mercy? And so we explore that today in a series of parables leading up to this amazing event and declaration of Christ, the son of David. Let's pray. Help us, Father. We know that we are catechized, schooled, discipled, much, 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 much more in the daily medias of our lives that fill our lives. It seems almost an impossible task, I confess, Lord, that we could possibly in a day push back the messaging that reaches our ears and even our minds, and yea, even our hearts, on a daily, hourly basis, pumped into our lives like a water hose through social media and opinions and opeds and all that's pushed around. And we confess, Lord, that when we hear it and we hear it and we hear it, Lord, that we honestly begin to wonder, is this religious stuff just crazy? Are we the heretics of human flourishing? We need your help, Lord. If this is true, show us, convict us, help us to see Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I want you to remember, if you were here last week, but if not, I'll let you know right now what it was about, that last week we, we started with this parable. And it's a context that leads to our passage is why I want to mention it. But this parable is the parable of a young infant who was powerless, who was reliant upon powerful people called adults and parents. And the disciples were upset when Jesus allowed these infants to come and to receive this holy, sacred temple blessing that promises salvation and eternal life. They rebuked him even. That's not what a powerful king does. We want a powerful king. You see, the subtext of this is all through Matthew. All through Matthew, he wants to tell us that Jesus is the king. 
It is his theme. He starts Matthew off with a genealogy of kings. 14, 14, 14 generations of kings that get you to Jesus Christ, where the conclusion before we even start reading the stories is Jesus is the son of David's son. Or he's the son of David, David's son. That's the point of this whole book. To tell you he's king and sovereign and powerful. And throughout the text of this book, there's a constant tension with the whole Jewish nation, even the disciples themselves, because they want a king to seize power. They want a king to take back Rome and the military and the economic and the, and the, and the political and the populous world of Rome to seize power on behalf of Israel that they could be set free from their oppressor. And over and over and over again, with relentless patience, this isn't my kingdom. That's not my purpose for coming. No, 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 I can't go to Jerusalem to seize power. My time has not yet come. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Oh, may it never be, says Peter. No, 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 you can't die. You're supposed to take the power. You're supposed to be my king. Do you hear the tension? Do you feel it coming out? I'm trying to get it out for you almost dramatically. And so we have this incredible parable where this young infant receives salvation, but the rich young ruler, the powerful, who's self-sufficient and self-righteous, relying on his works of the law and his great power of ingenuity and, and morality, he, he walks away sorrowful when the Lord exposes to him that with all his power to keep the law, he really had reduced the law significantly in a way that he'd really fooled himself. For the law is inward as well as outward. It's behavioral as well as attitudinal. It's, it's feelings. It's all of it. It, it. It's supposed to embrace all of us. And he walked away because he knew he did not love enough his neighbor to fulfill the law when he was told to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. Exposed. His power was insufficient. Following this parable, we are led to another parable. Jesus tells the parable of workers in the vineyard to further explain who enters the kingdom of God and is granted salvation from sin and eternal life. This vineyard metaphor harkens back to the prophets who likened Israel to the vineyard. That's important. And Israel, relationship being a vineyard, the Messiah would come and, and heal this very sickly vine. And so since we didn't read it, let me tell you briefly what it, what it says. Basically, it starts off with a landowner who goes out early in the morning and he hires men agreeing to pay them the daily rate, a silver coin for a day's work in the vineyard. He hires them at various times, though, throughout the day, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., and promises all the workers a fair wage. When the end of the day comes, the landowner said to his manager to pay the workers, starting with those who had been hired last. Those who began working at 5 p.m. were given the daily rate, one silver coin. What? When it came to those who had been hired first, early in the morning, they thought that they were going to receive more. And when they too were given the standard daily wage, they began to grumble, wouldn't you? 
They saw over there people would come at four, maybe, maybe even five. And they got the same ways as I did. We're listening to this going, that's just not fair. That's just not fair. The people who come later shouldn't get the same reward. They don't have my status. My status should have more power, should have more access, should have more money. I'm an Israelite. Okay, oh, this is a Gentile. Hmm. And so when they were given the standard daily wage, they grumbled, they were angry because they had done a lot more work than those who had started later in the day, a lot more work. My power should get more than this. And so the landlord did not listen to their complaints and he reminded them that they had agreed to the daily rate and pay when they were get hired. He said this, quote, am I not allowed? Read between the lines. Am I the landowner? The powerful? That which has a position of power over you and this, and this land that I manage? Am I not allowed to do what I want to do? Paraphrase more exactly, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, end quote. And he says, or are you envious because I'm generous? Hmm. The landloader then says, and he ends exactly as he ended the previous parable. The last will be first. The last, those who are powerless, those who are not self-reliant, those who are not self-righteous. And by self-righteous, I don't mean just an attitude. We use that a lot today, and it means just you've got a bad attitude. No, I mean someone who's relying on their own righteousness, their ability to perform the law, as if God has asked them to earn eternal life. How laughable is that? But that's what we kind of think sometimes when we rely on ourselves as if we can earn it, and we judge those over there who seem not to have earned it. I mean, come on, you've thought about this. A pedophile who spent his life abusing someone. And he's sent to prison as he ought to be when caught. Justice, temporal justice is done. But in the context of that temporal justice, he, he's brought into a context where he hears the gospel. Perhaps he's been humbled. He repents. He prays to receive Christ. The next day, someone in the prison kills him. Is he in heaven? Could he be in heaven? Can we possibly imagine such a scenario? I intentionally gave you the one that would just probably get you the most. <laughs> it gets me the most. Maybe you have another scenario. I'm sure there are many more. I mean, are we really so different? I mean, I earned it, Lord. I've been serving you as your pastor for 38 years, Lord. I've been an elder here. I've been a deacon here. I've been a Sunday school teacher here. I've been working and working. Could it possibly be that the, the man hanging on a cross with Jesus goes to heaven who's done not one day's work for your kingdom the way Jesus said it was to be? And God forbid, I'm an Israelite in the first century, and could it possibly be that I, 
of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and could it possibly be that this person over here could be brought in at the last hour and given the same wage that I'm going to receive? Do you see where this is going? The last shall be first and the first will be last. He concludes. Oh, it's incredible, by the way. <laughs> if you Google this, this little uh, parable, so indulgent, so obsessed with the powerful transac- the transactionalism of power, Jesus doesn't give an interpretation of this uh, parable. The reason for that being because it's part of a series of parables that will interpret them all, as you'll see. But oh, of course, I don't mean to be cynical, but I say it all the time. You just got to read the scripture in the context of scripture, not in the context of, I don't know, whatever journal you read. It's the context of the scripture that's going to tell you what it means. And so if you go on Google, you might today when you go home, I want to see what this pastor is talking about. I mean, he's real for real. Well, here's what you're going to find. You're going to see this parable mean this, that because the people in the story are laborers and managers, some assume it is about workplace ethics. In this case, it seems to say, don't compare your pay to others. Don't be a dissatisfied worker if others get paid more than you or blah, 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 blah. And that's oppressive. That's why I don't like Christianity. Or you're going to get another interpretation. The parable can also be used to justify unfair or abusive labor practices. Some workers may receive lower wages for unfair reasons, such as race or sex or immigration status. On it goes. Does Jesus mean that we should be content with this stuff? That we should be empowering this this stuff with our religion? You can see where this is going. And man, it feeds right into a narrative that goes all the way back to Constantine and, and the imperialism of the Christian world. And I'm now John Lennon, you know, may there be no religion. Right back to that place, because religion is the cause of all evils. And he's right. He's right. Christendom, religion, really is the source of a lot of evil. If only he would go back to the first three centuries. The fastest expansion of any movement in the history of the world, the Christian movement in the first three centuries, as those who were powerless in the worldly sense. And that's when the kingdom of God was most powerful to win souls. And that's something. Or maybe paying people the same regardless of how much work they do is a questionable business practice. And off it goes. Well, that's all I got to say. We're just missing the whole point here. Of course, the point is what it's been all along. The least shall be first. The first shall be last. That's the way of the kingdom of God. And by least here, he means those who are not coming to God as self-reliant people. Those who come to God as the humble who trust rather than reject his power. Who trust rather than reject his power. Who see his lordship as that which can heal that which can save, to see that what went wrong in the world was the day, that original day with our original sin, when we unsubmitted ourselves to God's power and we became our own power. 
That's where it all went wrong. And it leads us to the Tower of Babel in chaos and off we go. Wars and more wars. Selfishness trying to take selfishness. Power trying to seize your power. And the world became a powerful power transaction. God forbid this tactic of taking power in the world to expand the kingdom of God as if we become a Trojan horse that we might throw our minions into the world through their powerful means and save the world. Oh, what's really happened if we don't know anything? Have we have not learned anything from this last year? That how the, the transactionalism of power was a Trojan horse into the church and destroyed her from within whenever it was allowed to reign. Read the Atlantic article on that very topic. Can't remember the title of it, but you'll find it. Okay, do you see what's going on here? That's the context of now telling you something about the son of David. For you'll notice that that in this first century context, with this power problem between Jews and Greeks and Rome and all of this stuff, you can see how disappointing it would be for those who were looking for Jesus to be the worldly Messiah of the world. And so you have a couple of passages that wants you now to see just how beautiful power can be. Just how beautiful. I mean, I feel like a heretic saying that out loud. I really do. I honestly feel this feeling that, man, people are going to interpret what he just said to condone all the abuse of the powerful in the world. No, that's not what we're doing here. In fact, quite the contrary. To see what true and godly power looks like in the son of David will condemn all abusive power. But let's look to the story. What happens right after that parable of the vineyard? Verse 17, he turns to make sure you interpret it correctly now, okay? Not pulling it out. And he goes, hey, let me tell you where this is going. Where this lesson of go- is going is I'm going to Jerusalem. And this son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. There's going to be a power through death to self, death to self-serving power. There's going to be incredible power manifest through the power of mercy, the power of compassion, the power that can save you and me by being raised from the dead only once, only after he has once and for all extinguished the power against us that destroys us, the power of evil and sin itself. I mean, it's an incredible transaction of power, yeah. The power driven by our Lord with mercy, with mercy. So look what he does. He tells him about this place where he's going. And then the very next scene here, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, we're told, came up to him with her sons. And here again, we got a case study. In kneeling before him, she asked, kneeling, acknowledging his power, she says she wants to ask him something. And he said to her, what do you want? You'd think that she was going to say, 
I don't know, heal me, have mercy on me, forgive me. But no, she's an ambitious mother. <laughs> she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. What's she looking for? You're powerful. You're the most powerful of all. Acknowledging even he's the son of man, God, of, of David, as you see. Could my guys be your first and your second? Could they be your second? And share in all this power and glory? And what does he do, of course? He says, you don't know what you're asking. You have a very different understanding of power than the kind of power I've come to wield. Will you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? You see what he's saying? He just told us. We just told. We got an inside scoop earlier as to where his power is going to take him. To self-sacrifice as a servant to those he came to save. And so he goes on to say, I don't have the power to give you that kind of power because father called me, my father has the power and the power he gave me was a very different power in so many words than you're asking for. And again, it says it. Here's that tagline. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of David. The title son of David appears 22 times in the Bible. Where do you think it appears most in all of the Bible? You might be thinking, oh, it's got to be the, the kings over in the Old Testament or Second Chronicles where it talks all about David and, and his being a king. Nope. There's 22 uses of this in the Bible. Four are in Chronicles. Ten are in Matthew. Two here. Three in Mark, etc. Matthew began, as I've told you, his whole book talking about Christ, the King, the powerful one. He goes on and explains how this king doesn't come to serve his own interests, but ours, what if, just what if he comes not to oppress, but to bless. Can we imagine that again, CPCers? Can we imagine that with the deluge of messaging and catechesis into our souls that comes to us every day of the week until we walk in this door? Can we possibly imagine a power that isn't corruptive, that we could receive him as king with power? And to help us get there, we have yet another story. We're told about a blind situation here. In the redemptive context, blindness depicts those to whom God has mercy. Perhaps a good physical metaphor to the spiritual condition of humanity and sin, groping about, lost and blind, unenlightened. And upon those kind of people, lost and blind and unenlightened, Powerless, he has mercy. It's all through the scriptures. Psalms 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down in humility. The Lord loves the righteous. That is the righteous through humility that receive the righteousness of God as we learn. 
Isaiah talks about it with respect to the, uh, the, uh, the coming of the Messiah. I've got several here. I'll just read one. Chapter 42 is a great passage to go back and reflect on this if you want. I will lead the blind by a road do, they, that they do not know, that is, that they cannot see, by paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into a level ground. These are the things I can do. I can do. I'm powerful enough to do. And I will not forsake them. The convergence of royalty and mercy is right face in front of us. And so at the right place, the right time, writ carefully by the editing of Matthew, taking us through the life of Christ, we find, behold, two blind men were sitting among the road. God's providence meant to enact a point. And they see coming Christ with his royal authority, and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. Boy, they had read the prophets, perhaps, in the Psalms, that they can trust this power and believe in it and put themselves at his mercy. Now the crowds rebuked them. Again, like the disciples before, you can't treat our Messiah King like that. He's not here to be humble and merciful in your servant. He's here to seize power. He's a powerful. You hear, they have this in their mind. Imagine the movement that you most espouse, and I am not gonna go there right now. But imagine the movement you most aspire and, and here's this very powerful figure and how, how excited you are to see him stand up against the power of the other side power. Have you heard that narrative recently? That's what's going on here. Not a whole lot different. Trusting in the power of this world, gleeful to see someone who might could seize it and take it for their own. Our interest, our tribe, whatever it is. Same thing, they rebuked him. And then, of course, he turns to the blind man, two people, and he says, Lord, let our eyes be open, they say. And so he rebukes the crowds, and of course, he heals them. It says very clearly, his heart went out to them. His heart went out to them as a literal translation of this idea of he had compassion as it's interpreted in your English. His heart went out to them, a convergence of power and compassion that is unimaginable to the crowds in their transactional power relationships. Okay, so what's the point? I think you know the point. I mean, there is a kind of religion that is here presented where son of David utilizes his sovereign power to serve rather than to be served and with compassion to save us from what really oppresses us, which is not Rome or this brand of America or that brand of America or this brand of whatever tribal enemy you have versus that brand of what tribal energy. No, that's not our real enemy. That's not what's really oppressing us. The oppression is the sin, the original sin of self-lordship tempted to us by the evil one himself, Satan. And so this is a kind of religion that wants to truly set you free from oppression, 
who truly wants to have compassion on you and heal you and love you. So let me ask you some questions in closing. Do you resent those who are offered forgiveness from sins that you consider heinous? It would expose that we are like perhaps the Pharisees who judge some sins as more heinous than others, but isn't that true? No. The unforgivable sin is to reject God's Holy Spirit who's understood within the redemptive historical context to be bringing you and enlighten you to the Messiah that you might be saved. In temporal terms, some sins are much more egregious than others. That's true. And we are especially aware of those sins that prey upon innocent. That's true. Those who are in comparison to the perpetrator, less powerful in society or personality, we ought to hate any kind of sin that is abusive against those who are weak. We think of the pedophile, the rapist, the murderer, the misogynist, the racist, oh, and it goes and on. These are reprehensible things. This is not, this mercy is not intended to in any way empower that. Quite the contrary. If you listen to the podcast we had just last week, actually, it'll be coming in, I think, the week after uh, 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 Thanksgiving with Karen Peck as a, as a uh, litigator, as a, I'm blanking here, you know, federal prosecutor. Thank you, wherever you get, Arpit, Karen, I remember you. Um, Wonderful conversations, awesome. But we very carefully want to distinguish there this idea of justice and mercy and how they are not incompatible, but in fact, they are complementary. The nation, God took great cares to make sure there was justice. He set up and established only one of three institutions that God positively instituted when he established the state. And the state is given the charge to do the vengeance of God against those who oppress, to seek justice. That's a good thing, especially if you understand it in a way that you do in the greater scheme of things, that, that it restrains evil, and it's, it's meant to create a place where redemption, which it can't give you, the state cannot do redemption, the state cannot build a utopian society. The state is meant to literally protect us and to give us space in this world that's not totally destroyed so that the kingdom of God can come and flourish. You can go read that right in our Confession of Faith on the issue of, of church and state. It's right there. The church has always believed this, that, that we are not asking for, that mercy is not an occasion to empower the powerful and their oppression. The Christian would say, do justice and direct ourselves to the state for the state to do that justice temporally on earth. And yet at the very same time can pray for their salvation that the power of Christ could heal them. That is an amazing thing. I asked you the question, could you envision yourself? Do you resent those who are offered forgiveness from sins that you consider heinous? Maybe those sins against you? Could you possibly, while seeking justice, seek mercy and walk humbly in those regards before God? That's part of the take home, I think, from a passage like this, that we would embrace this kind of son of David. Do you resent it when God commands something by his word that seems contrary to your own ethic or preference? Do you resent Christianity that in effect doesn't want you to be just you, 
but he wants, it wants us to be a restored you, a sanctified you, an image of God you, for the glory of God and for the sake of truth and grace for this world. That would be the take home of a passage like this. Not rebuking the son of David for healing my blindness, but exalting him for doing so. Thirdly, do you see yourself like the rich young ruler or the hired laborer who worked longer hours than those who started later in the day? Or do you see yourselves more like the young infant mother whose children are blind? You see the question? They wanted what was just and fair. She wanted mercy. She asked for mercy. What prevents you then from giving yourself to Jesus as the son of David? Is it that you distrust him? I don't, I totally get it. I don't know how you would ever trust anybody with power right now. But this is a passage that wants you to trust it. The son of David is different. He can do justice and mercy both. He really can. We embrace both. But most especially don't miss the point. We're talking about the blessing of salvation and eternal life. There is an ultimate justice. There is an ultimate justice. I mean eternal justice. It's coming. And therefore, for those who understand the gravitas of that, we see every transaction as an opportunity to, yes, do temporal justice that it might restrain evil in this world, but not to forget that that is insufficient to save the world. And what we need is mercy, the mercy of the Son of David, who is great in power and great in mercy. I hope you receive them and receive that. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.